Chapter Twelve of Outlaws of Ravenhurst by Sister Emma Melda Wallace, S.L. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Last Stand of the Old Earl. Angus Gordon rode in the teeth of the March wind. Full seventy winters had whitened Langsword's sun, yet like the oaks of Ben Ender, he stood snow-crowned and strong. Seventy years of storm, civil war, and chaos, famine and plague. Scotland had scarcely known a shrove-tide peace in all that time, and Clan Gordon had been in the thick of every fray. Sir Angus had kept the pledge his infant lips had made, there in the feudal hall among his warriors, with his hand on his dead father's heart. He had been true to Mary, Queen of Scots, through the wars that raged around her cradle, the tumult of her reign, the years of her captivity, true till she ended her peerless life on the scaffold, a martyr in fact, if not in name. Now it was her son that reigned, six James of the old Stuart line, a man like and yet unlike the kings that had gone before him. He had the same high and headstrong pride, the terrible and untamed passions of that race, but into his life the gentle influence of the faith had never come. He was greater and yet less great than they. His scepter swayed two kingdoms, but to gain the English crown he made allies of those who murdered his own mother. Between the two nations there was peace, after centuries of conflict, peace on the old border, in the debatable land, in the rebellious highlands, such peace as the conquered know under the tyrant's steel-shod foot. When James crushed the highlands, he thought it hardly worth his time to drive the old Earl of Ravenhurst into exile. He had one foot in the grave as matters stood. Why spend powder and ball taking that strong fortress, which in time must fall into the royal hands like a ripe apple? His majesty contented himself with confiscating land after land till the old earl had but the empty title of greatness left to him. Lord of massive buttresses and stately halls, wherein dwelt poverty, almost starvation, chief of a clan but clanless. This was the plan of that most gracious sovereign, James the Sixth of Scotland, James the First of England. But leaders will be followed. As the lowlands have ever brought forth riches, so have the highlands given the world men. The clan had pledged itself to Angus Gordon. They who made that vow had long been the food of ravens, but the sons and grandsons of those men were Clan Gordon, and they knew no thought but loyalty. In the wild fastness of Benender's glens they lived, rugged as the thunder-splintered crags of that mountain, and as true. So the earl rode in the teeth of the march wind. He rode a-hunting. Not that the weary old man loved the sport, for the orphans wandering in the ancient halls were many, and, tired of salt fish, they were begging for meat. The men were at work in the barren fields, so Sir Angus saddled his own war-horse and went a-hunting on that bleak March day. The old earl was returning toward evening with a deer across his saddle when he thought he heard a moan. It was very low, but he was so sure that he had heard the cry of a being in distress that he searched the bushes for some time. Finding nothing, he was about to proceed upon his way, but he could not bring himself to do so, and searched again. At last he saw a man lying in the shadow of a log, and hurried to him. "'Mother of mercy, can this be you, Fire Walter of Olnewick?' he cried. "'Your ears are sharp, my lord,' answered the friar with a faint smile, "'and it is a kind heart that makes him so. But go, most noble sir, you know that I am outlawed.' The king's men have done worse than outlaw you. It is on the rack you have been. Go, my lord, you must not be seen speaking to me. 
Do you think I will leave you here? You are not the first outlaw that has found refuge at Ravenhurst. It is in my mind that you have been racked for not telling that holy mass is offered in my castle. It is for sparing me that you have suffered. Let it pass, Sir Angus. Leave me here. You are risking your life uselessly. All will be over by sunrise, and heaven is as near here as elsewhere. For yourself you never think, but remember that the clan and the orphans are depending upon you. Father, to Ravenhurst you go whether you will or not. Had I the strength of other days I would carry you. That I cannot do now, but there are those who can. He raised his battered bugle to those kind old lips, and the sweet notes rang out, A rescue, a rescue! Fitting notes, in truth, for the last call ever blown upon the war-horn of that veteran, in the cause of God. Some workmen in the fields came in answer to the bugle. They made a rough litter of boughs, and spreading their plaids upon it, carried the friar to the castle. For days the good priest lay between life and death. Sir Angus would not leave his side. At last he was better. He could walk about, but the racked arms were still so sore that it went to the heart to hear him moan when the bandages were changed. The old earl took a trusty lad, the grandson of Tam the armorer, called Mucklejano the Cluth, and sent him to find a friendly sea-captain who would take the friar to France. Not that the priest intended to give up the Scottish mission. He was to return when strong again. Before going, Friar Walter determined to say Mass, so that the faithful might receive their Easter communion. He could not move his arms, but he asked Sir Angus to stand behind him and move them for him. "'Ah, Father,' remonstrated the old earl, "'how can you bear the pain of that?' "'Do you fear for the blessed sacrament, Sir Angus?' the priest said quietly. "'I can control my fingers fairly well now, and I think I have strength enough not to faint.' Remember, we can count upon the assistance of God, for this Mass is necessary to fulfill His law. It may be a year before I can return, perhaps longer. The faithful must receive Holy Communion at Easter time, and there is no other way. Mass was said in the great chamber of the Seaward Tower. The fireplace in this room served more purposes than one in those wild days. The mantle could be drawn out twice its width, and lowered so as to form an altar, Within the carven figures were hidden the sacred vessels of the sacrifice. Behind the mantle was a hole large enough to conceal man. In truth, a cunning piece of Flemish wood carving was the fireplace in the great room of the seaward tower. All could be hidden in the space of an eye's twinkling, sacred vessels, holy vestments, even the priest himself. But the best laid plans sometimes fail. Judas was one of the twelve, and Bertrand was the earl's most trusted servant. He owed his very life to Sir Angus, a starving, hound-tracked outlaw, he had fled to Ravenhurst, and, as with all in sorrow and need, the old earl had been a father to him. But the master washed the feet of Judas, and that same night was betrayed by him. Christ's nearest followers have ever found the same fate. Sir Angus sent Bertrand to tell the outlaw Catholics that Mass was to be said at Ravenhurst on Easter Sunday. Bertrand did that, in truth, and then ran post-haste to Russell to tell him the same. The clink of gold was more to him than gratitude or honor, friend or God. It was three o'clock on Easter Sunday morning. The great room was nearly filled with the folk kneeling about on the floor. In the corner knelt four children. They were dear to the old earl. 
james and roger were his grandsons the other two stephen and margaret were orphans of the douglas line and to them sir roger had been more than a father it was to be the children's first communion day and the old warrior had prepared them well for the coming of the king of kings but the little ones could not say their prayers they were watching the face of the priest it was so thin and white yet wonderfully beautiful the lines about the mouth drew in so sharply when sir angus moved his arms this way and that they could see the drops of cold sweat shining in the candlelight his voice as he said the old old prayers had a strange sweetness in them that sank deep into their hearts then sounded the little bell that warns of the coming of the lord again the silence the silver bell's low music once more the sacred host raised high in those thin white hands the sweet toned bell through the stillness the golden chalice with the precious blood the lord blessing them as they adored there was a clank of armor in the outer hall the door swung open something flashed from the doorway through the candlelight and struck fire walter in the side he lowered the chalice set it gently upon the altar and sagged against the old earl sir angus clutched the stricken priest bertrand had warned the king's men bertrand had passed a rope to them over the wall bertrand the trusted servant the one left on guard the soldiers were everywhere men and women fled helter-skelter through a side door while the four frightened children crawled back under the old earl's great bed and lay still by and by came a silence and they ventured to peep from the hiding-place some twenty troopers were standing at the end of the room with drawn swords they stood as if waiting in order and the captain was slow to give it twenty-three in number but they were in downright terror of the lang sword in the earl's right hand friar walter lay across the hearth he was dead on the altar the chalice gleamed in the candlelight beside it lay the sacred host just in front of his god stood the brave old earl it was a strange sight the white-haired warrior in the surplice of an alkalite the light of battle in the old blue eyes and clenched in his right hand the lang sword that had named his father that had been the ancestral blade of the knights of rock raven since the days of fire the braves by his side was the young lad who had served the priest at mass muckle john grandson of tam the armorer in his hand he held the dirk that had pierced the heart of the priest twenty-three against two and it was the twenty-three that were afraid the earl's swordsmanship was a toast in two countries the officer took a step forward one could see he had little liking for his work captain john brent said sir angus slowly i was your godfather in baptism by the vows i took that day i tell you that you have committed a grievous sin this day the punishments of god almighty are terrible my order sir growled the officer a soldier must obey orders and since when do the orders of a king make it lawful to break the laws of the king of kings there was a struggle in brent's face he was too good a man for such a trade come he growled let's go we have done enough of the devil's work for one day the men seemed only too willing to obey they had no wish to match swords with the great sir angus gordon but bertrand sprang forward you white-livered cowards he roared twenty seasoned veterans against one old fool in a fisherman's gilly a thousand pounds reward for the priest's body 
The rubies on that chalice are worth rattling guineas. Here you stand like whip curs and fear of the lang sword. Don't you know the old cutthroat has reached his doddering days? If fight you will, fight I will, shouted Brent. But I draw for the other side. Perhaps God may forgive me the sins of this night. He will forgive you, said Sir Angus. The captain sprang forward, but paused and dropped on his knees as he passed the altar. He looked at the Blessed Sacrament, one sorrowful, pleading look. Then he took his place. Two troopers tried to follow him. Down with the turncoats, cried Bertrand. Half a dozen swords pierced them before they could take another step. Something struck the altar. One candle went out. The blue light of the laying sword shot in quick flashes through the semi-darkness. There were curses and wild cries. Swords clanged as they struck each other. Brent's down, was Bertrand's voice. Finish him. That's a clean stroke. Now back and rest a bit. There's only the old fool left. The troopers drew off a few steps. Sir Angus stood in a pile of dead. Brent and young Muckle John were among them. The old earl was straight still, but there was a wound above his temple, and the blood trickled over his thin white hair. The good right arm hung limp by his side. The langsler was clenched in his left. Age was beginning to tell, for his breath came in quick, short gasps. Then Stephen grasped his sister's hand. Hist, Margie, he sobbed. Look at the altar. Some sword had struck the chalice. It was lying on its side. The precious blood was dripping drop after drop from the cloth down to the hearth and mingling with the blood of the martyred priest. Bertrand's voice snarled again. Once more, and the job is done. Up, lads. The lang sword flashed. A trooper went staggering back toward the wall. Another fell with a wild curse across that dark pile at the earl's feet. Then Bertrand's sword caught the old man's wrist. The lang sword sprang high in the air. Sir Angus was down. They were dragging him along the floor. Others had the body of Friar Walter. Then the old earl saw the chalice, the overturned chalice, the precious blood, and Bertrand, reaching one greedy hand for the chalice with the gems that were worth rattling guineas. The chief's voice rang as in the battle days. Bertrand, have a care. You have spilt the blood of man this night, brave Johns and Brents, and the blood of a holy priest of God. But have a care, Bertrand. If you touch that chalice, the blood on your hands will be the blood of God. The traitor turned as if to answer, but a trooper broke in. Come on, let it alone. There'll be bad luck with the chalice along. There always is. We had plenty of it the day. Five are living out of twenty, and all of us wounded. It'll be not a lady's job to get the dead one and the live one up to Castle Russell, and the old Earl jail before sun-up. Matt and Dave cannot help at all. Bertrand snarled, but he followed them, muttering under his breath. I can see to that later. They're worth guineas, rattling guineas. End of chapter 12